amazing day that we get to come into your presence once again, that we get to be welcomed by you. And Lord, as we come into this place, we recognize that this work must be your work, that it can't be the work of my thoughts or minds, but simply your movement, empowering, infusing, enlivening the words. And when that happens, hearts change, lives are moved, spirits transformed. So Lord, chisel out of our granite heads ears for listening and eyes for seeing. Help us to know that you are God and there is no other. Let there be less of me so there will be more of you. In your holy name we pray. Amen. Living out the gift. Hopefully, um, there's still some envelopes available uh, with $10 and a um, piece of paper in there. If you have not gotten your $10 from the church, um, I want you to have it. I don't want those to be sitting there. So if you are here today and you're like, I haven't gotten my $10. The only thing come here this one time is I love congregational meetings and I want to listen. Take money. Please take $10, and the, the point of the $10 is for you to just pray over it and say, Lord, how can I use this for kingdom work? And then if you want, again, we don't have a congregational meeting for six months, so if you come on a non-congregational meeting Sunday, you can write your story down of what God did through that money and just put it in the envelope and put a dot on it so we know it's a story. But it's just so encouraging to hear between emails and things. So again, I know that someone in this room is going, he doesn't mean me. Yes, I do mean you. If you're here and you haven't gotten your $10, I mean you. Whoever you are, whoever you are, please take them. Go up to the front, grab it, and we would love for you to have that. And we're talking about what is it to live out of a gift, to understand that we receive gifts, that we're given gifts, and then to live out of that place of a gift receiver and a gift giver. And today, um, of course, with our gospel reading, the gift of being blessed. And this word blessed is, um, it's a hard word. And it's a hard word for me because it is so often used and so often talked about. And of course, um, in the Twitter age, hashtag blessed, right, is a t-shirt now that I've seen a lot of people wearing around. And of course, you know, hashtag blessed. And so I went to Twitter and I said, what happens if I do hashtag blessed? What comes up? Well, there's the post you kind of expect, right? Like uh, someone on their father-daughter dance saying, you know, my first daddy-daughter dance, hashtag blessed, hashtag girl dad um, from the Kobe thing. Then we got this. This is a good one right here. Now that's hashtag blessed, right? Two heart or a heart formed by the hands, somewhere beautiful, looking, enjoying the moment. Who's the third person taking the picture, though? <laughs> right? Is the question that has to be asked um, in this one, because it's very well set up. It's like hashtag not real, probably. <laughs> hashtag Google image search. Um, and then for whatever reason that I... Um, I must look on Twitter a lot for college football things because my algorithm showed me a ton of recruitment stuff for hashtag blessed. Like, I'm signing with this random school and I'm signing with this random school, hashtag blessed. And so this, this word blessed gets thrown around all the time. And in being used so often, we kind of lose what's actually going on. 
And so I want to just reconsider and pause on what that word is so that we can get to the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, and this phrase, blessed, right? This word is the word that is the Greek word behind that, um, makareas, and this phrase means divine favor shown upon. Happy is, blessed is, is the word that is happening here. Blessed are the peacemakers. Divine favor is shown upon the peacemakers. And so as we look at this word and try to unpack this word, we, we recognize that with our, our Twitter hashtags and this phrase, divine favor, it comes with it, this kind of feeling of, of good things that must be happening and um, good blessings and, and being poured out upon in wonderful, encouraging ways. And in the culture today, there is this thing that would jump on the hashtag blessed bandwagon called the prosperity gospel. Not sure how many of you are familiar with this, but the prosperity gospel is this idea, and um, I, I explained it in this way. The prosperity gospel says God wants good for his people. And we go, yeah, that, that's something that we believe that God wants. And then we say, okay, so those whom have great faith receive great blessings. So this seems kind of formulaic, right? God wants good for his people. What connects me to God is my faith. If I have great faith, then that will get me great blessings. And so then your net worth is a sign of God's favor and blessings upon your life. And so you take, you know, the sum, the sums of all of your totals, my house is worth, my car is worth, all of these things, and that's how much God's favor is poured out upon me. Now, this leads very quickly then to pastors who go, well, look at all the wonderful things I have. If you see the fact that I have my private jet, my Lamborghini, my huge house, therefore, God's blessings are poured out upon me abundantly, and you should listen to me, okay? Don't worry, those thoughts did drive our church budget for next year just to make sure that we're right here that we're about to vote on only a 400 percent increase in our salary but blessed hashtag um there's this temptation to see it that way right there's this temptation to go oh that's what blessing is and this is so incredibly dangerous and it's incredibly dangerous because it puts the action and emphasis on our works our possessions and the things that we have I saw this in deadly effect, and there's a particular conversation I had in Birmingham with a young man that just continues to break my heart as we were at breakfast together, and he was a man who I met at a, a nutrition store, and we got breakfast a couple of times, and as I was talking to him, he was telling me the story of his parents, and his parents were writing checks to ministries all across the nation because they were convinced that the more that they gave, the more they trust in God and showed their trust in God with their checkbook, his sister was a lesbian and she and they did not want that for his sister. And so if they wrote enough checks to enough ministries and got those ministries praying, her homosexuality would go away. And they're just writing checks and he's watching his family go broke giving to these organizations to get rid of her homosexuality. Their actions 
were going to lead to God's divine favor and answering their prayers. Now, that story seems extreme, but this is where just having our vision slightly off and moved in the wrong direction can end in devastating consequences. And so as we work through this idea of of wanting to say, yeah, okay, so blessings must then um, be things that we can see and and heart hands and um, daddy-daughter dances. That that must be what blessings is. That can That limited view on blessing gets us into this place of looking around our lives for proof that God loves us. We're trying to add to the proof that God loves us. And when we don't see that proof, we feel unloved. And we go, well, this is, this is probably a 21st century thing, right? Or maybe a 20th century thing. This is, this is an American thing to think about it that way. And I'd set before you the story of the rich young ruler in Mark 10, 17 through 27. What did the rich young ruler do to Jesus? He came up to Jesus. He was rich. He had his stuff together. He was powerful. And he comes to Jesus with his confidence, right? Hey, tell me what I must do to enter the kingdom of heaven. You know, obey the law, do all those things. And what does the rich and ruler say? <laughs> I've done all of those things. Oh, go sell all your possessions and give them to the poor. And the man left very sad, for he had very many things. The struggle with blessings and God's favor and our material possessions has been, I think, as old as human history. We look to those blessings and we think that is a sign that God is for us. We look to our lives for these kinds of things. And then we have the Sermon on the Mount and it teaches us something and pretty spectacular. And in order for us to get to this point, because as I've been um, thinking about this sermon, um, I've been excited for, for this moment because I think something very cool happened that I rediscovered. I'm sure, I'm sure I learned this at some point. I have enough years of theology behind me that someone must have said this, but I don't remember who, but I'm like kind of rediscovering. This is so cool. Someone needs to say this. So I'm going to tell you. Okay. And then you can forget and, and then relearn it or, or think it's your thought and that's okay, but we'll just enjoy this time together with it. Okay. So gospel of Matthew does this. It starts with this genealogy and it starts with growing baby Jesus, right? He's getting older and older and he's moving through life and you see him slowly maturing. You see John the Baptist. You kind of have all of these narrative stories and we have chapters and chapters, one, two, and three of him going into Egypt, him being left from Egypt. Um, We have all of these things happening and Jesus isn't saying anything. There's no Jesus talk. There's no red words. If you go back to the beginning of Matthew, you'll find no red words in there, but just laying down of foundations of what Jesus is going to do, okay? And in fact, before the Sermon on the Mount, before this phrase that we started to hear, I'm going to have all of the words of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew on one screen. Four chapters of the Gospel. Four chapters. There's 28 chapters. So four chapters of the 28. What's the percentage? Some math person said? Perfect. That many. Is there, and look at how many words there are. This is all of the words of Jesus. All of them. We're laying this foundation And I know the text is a little bit small, but I wanted to put them all on one screen for you. 
First phrase is about his baptism. Second, third, and fourth phrases are about his temptation. Fourth and fifth phrase are the, um, the sermon I gave a couple of weeks ago. Repent, follow me. And immediately they followed him. That's it. These are all the words of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. And then what Matthew does is he has no words, but Jesus starts moving through the area. And we hear, and he's teaching, and he's preaching, and he's healing the sick, and he's doing great signs and wonders, and people are starting to follow him. We don't know exactly. He doesn't give stories about the details, but you just pick up this energy, okay? This energy of Jesus doing great signs and people going, oh, wow, look at what he's doing. And they start following him, but he's not saying anything yet. He's just proving himself by having these couple of words and by doing these great actions until he has this group around him. Also, interesting note, he's only called four of the disciples so far that we know of. So the first phrase here, when he goes up on the mountain, he gathers his disciples. Our initial intent is always, oh, the 12, right? He hasn't called all 12 yet. He only has four of them. He has this group following him. He has this energy. People are pointing to him. Something's different about him. He's healing. He's doing amazing things. Wonderful things are going on, right? You can just see this energy. But what has, what has he not done? What has the Gospel of Matthew not done? He hasn't let Jesus talk yet. He's given Jesus these tight little phrases where he says, repent, where he rebukes Satan, where he looks at his disciples and they miraculously follow him. This is all we have. And then in Matthew 5, 1, you know, it's like setting up a great movie, right? Can you see like the, the, the editor putting all these things together? The cinematographer, oh, he's making this wonderful movie. And you're waiting, you're waiting for him to say something. And he, he realized, he looks around and goes, okay, I have all these people following me. And now this is now Matthew does this very intentionally. He puts Jesus up on top of a mountain, right? He goes up a mountain. And what Matthew's doing, Matthew's our most Jewish gospel, he's the whole time been pointing back to Moses, right? Hey, Moses, this guy is fulfilling all those things that Moses talked about. And as he goes up the mountain, you know, all of our Jewish brains go, oh, Mount Sinai. Important things happen on mountains, he puts his disciples around him. And now he opens his mouth. And this, <laughs> this is what's phenomenal about the gospel. We've been waiting for him to open his mouth. We've been waiting for some teaching and he's about to give it to you. He's into three chapters straight Jesus's words, okay? I mean, he's gonna give you teaching now. But the very first word, the very first word that Jesus says is this. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Hold on. What? You powerful one who's been healing and doing all of those things, you're telling me blessed are the poor in spirit? This is not what you're expecting. I mean, we've been in church long enough that I know you, you know this, right? You know you have the Beatitudes and they're there in your heart and your mind. But put on your human, good old human hat. Who do you expect this guy to be blessing saying divine favor falls upon? Who would you expect? 
Blessed are the rich ones, the ones who have all the stuff. They're the divinely favored ones. They're the happy ones. They're the one who God's looking out for. Blessed are the powerful ones. They're the ones who divine favor is falling upon. They're the ones who's going to do something good. Those aren't Jesus' first words. Jesus' first words are, blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And this is, this is the image that I think Matthew's giving. He's, he's gathered his disciples around him. He's gathered all, all these crowd, right? There's all of these people who are around him. And he's looking out at them. And they're waiting. We're waiting. Everybody's waiting. And he sees somebody who we all know. And we, and we all know that they're in the midst of something. And I think when he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, he's looking right at somebody and saying, you. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For yours will be the kingdom of heaven. You. Blessed are those who mourn. For they will be comforted. You. Blessed are the meek. For they will inherit the earth. See, I don't think it's just poor in spirit. But I think what Matthew wants to do is he wants Jesus to be looking at the person who you know and you don't expect. And Jesus looks at them and says, this one, this person who is the poor in spirit, my divine favor has fallen upon them. That one who's mourning, who's lost something, and we all know that they're in the midst of the suffering and pain and endless waves of overwhelming emotions that mourning is. I'm comforting them. The, the meek one, the one who's thinking less of themselves, the one who, who doesn't have a high position or high authority, that one. What earth-shattering news this prophet, this teacher, this roving man, healing, hurting people, healing illnesses, sick people, gathering crowds, what did he just do to them? I think he turned it all around. Everything they were expecting. The hashtag blessed that they were expecting, the ones that we expect, the people with the heart hands and the people with the helicopters and the airplanes and the um, big houses and all of those things, those are the blessed ones. He goes, no. <laughs> the kingdom of heaven looks totally different. And I want to tell you that my divine favor does not mean what you think it means. It doesn't look the way you think it looks and it falls upon that person and that person and that's the kind of kingdom I'm ushering in. And this is where Matthew starts his teaching. This is what Matthew does with the opening sermon that Jesus gives. So then, what do we do? Right? What do we do with this massive sermon? Well, I think the something we have to keep in mind is that Matthew assembled this for believers after the resurrection. He assembled it for us. 
I mean, this whole scene was built for you and me. It was built to have an impact for you and me. He's writing this so that we can just have our world turned around by this news. The expectations that we put on Jesus, the way that we want him to bless and the ways that we expect him to bless is not going to be what he is going to do. And Matthew is taking all of these teachings and he's putting them on top of this mountain and Jesus is teaching it and he's rocking the world of everybody who's listening to him. And it's assembled for us to be impacted. These worlds just absolutely turned the world upside down. The things that we all expected, the ones who we expect to have the hashtag blessed on them, that's not who Jesus shows. That's not who he points to. He points to the least, the lost. My divine favor goes to that person. And it will not give up. And these words have this eschatological, and that's a fancy word, but I use it to impress you. Vision. This vision, and what the word means is these end time vision, the way the world's going to be, eschatological. The what's going to happen in the end. See, because there's two parts of these phrases, right? There's the one that totally surprises you. Like, blessed are the peacemakers. The peacemakers are, are, are the, not the ones with the power, not the ones with authority, but, you know, we have peacemakers inside of a missile, right, in America. And that's not the kind of peacemaker Jesus is talking about. He's talking about the one who is willing to take the hit, the one who's willing to, um, in the relationship, compromise, be under the other one, take the pain of the relationship to build up the kingdom. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. This vision in the end. Are peacemakers called children of God today? Well, we don't see it, do we? Very often we look at peacemakers as the weak ones, the ones who compromised, the ones who um, were not strong enough to, to stay in the fight. But he says in the end, that's the who's going to change the world. Plus, how the merciful. For they will receive mercy. Do we see the merciful receiving mercy in today's age? No, the merciful gets stomped on a lot of times. The merciful get taken advantage of. But if you put on your end times vision, the way the kingdom's going to be, what God intends the world to be, blessed are the merciful. For they will receive mercy. So I think there's two important things happening here. I think there's two punches that Jesus is doing. The first is, is he's rocking our world so it all flips upside down. So we can't come in with the expectations that we had before. He's making it radically different. But he's also doing something else. He's giving us the way of life in the kingdom. He's calling us to a new way of life that involves meekness and mercy peacemaking, allowing ourselves to not see our persecutions as the end, but see them as a blessing. This is an eschatological kind of vision. He's calling us to a new way of living. Having just the chapter before established his authority by healing, by going about doing good works, healing and teaching, and then he comes with his punch blessed. Divine favor falls upon these people whom you don't expect. 
Okay. So what then are we to do as we just kind of reflect? And I mean, I, I think you could, you could probably tell we could just go like all day with this. And some of you would love that. Others of you would say, you promised pizza. And that's coming later. I do promise that. What, what do we do with this? I think the first thing is, it's okay to feel blessed when things are going well. When you're having moments of heart hands up on top of mountains and have a third person take your picture, enjoy it. Right? We all don't, don't be looking around for reasons to mourn. Because we're waiting to be comforted. Say, you know what, God? Thank you. Because divine favor falls upon those days too. You know, I mean, we live in an amazing part of the world. It's gorgeous here. And I know the weather's a little bit bad today, but guys, it's February, right? And this is bad for us. We're all cold and it's 65 degrees, but we're all unhappy about it. And we th- we're allowed to say, this, this is great, Lord. Thank you for giving us the ocean. Thank you for giving us this great meal. Thank you for those things. But, but let's not miss that amidst the, these um, blessings. Let's not miss the fact that a great day is a great day and we're allowed to celebrate in that great day and not feel bad for it while also not being surprised that we're also blessed when things are going horribly. When, when we're mourning and we can't see up or down because the pain is just too much that we don't say, well, I guess God's favor is no longer resting upon me. This Sermon on the Mount refuses to allow us to have that answer. But what it tells us is it says, even there, even in those moments, I'm not giving up on you. I'm with you, and in the end, you will be comforted. Although you don't see the way the world is right now, I'm in it, and I'm with you. And so we can't just use hashtag blessed when things are great, but we also need to know that it's in the darkest days too. And let this wonderful list of Jesus' first teachings guide your aspirations. Not to be people who have more. People who can list off all of our bank accounts with the amount of numbers in them and the amount of property we have and all of those things, and that's a sign. But let meekness, peacemaking, mercy, Let these qualities that Jesus reminds us blessings fall upon guide the people whom we're trying to become out of living out of our gift. The world does not want you to have those behaviors. It seems like a fool's errand to operate that way in this world. But what God is saying in this opening sermon in Matthew is that although it may seem like that according to the world standards, this is kingdom living. This is the way to establishing God's kingdom here on earth. It involves things like hungering and thirsting for righteousness. It involves things like being merciful. It involves things like being pure in heart. That this way of living, although totally unknown, unbelievable to the world, seemingly unsuccessful, seemingly weak, seemingly compromising, seemingly small, is kingdom living. And let's not forget that this list can be something we aspire to be also.